Let's read the scriptures together. If you have your Bibles, would you please open to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 45. This is a remarkable story about God. Please pay attention. And you may have noticed the sermon title this morning uses the words sold and sent. And so please pay particular attention to those words as they are used through the text. Genesis chapter 45. And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell in his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them after that his brothers talked with him let's pray Lord on this day lift our eyes to glory help us to see the glory that is evident in this story as we are sojourners in this world be merciful upon us I pray put your light upon our path in Jesus name I pray amen If you're visiting with us, you've come at a great point in the story, but uh, I hope that if you're visiting with us and this is the first you've heard of this story, that um, you'll be able to follow through us as we make our way through this particular text. This really is the turning point of the generations of Jacob and uh, the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. Um, there's no more hidden agendas. There are no more secrets. 
up until this point, this has been a brilliantly recorded story for us, and we know that the brothers have been kept in the dark, but Joseph knows who he is, obviously, and Joseph is using his um, anonymity to find out if his brothers have really changed. You and I know that because we're the reader and we're, we're kind of looking above and onto this text and so we've been able to, you know, kind of have our own emotions engaged and wrapped up in the story. But now we're finally all on the same page. We all know who Joseph is, we all know who the brothers are, and we know what is about to take place and it is an amazing story. Uh, as I was saying in the first service, I think you have to have an emotional IQ of four or less not to be moved by this text. It just is dripping with incredible, deep emotion. And it's beautiful emotion. And it reminds me that emotion is not a bad thing. That emotion is a good thing. It has a context. It has a place. But emotion is a good thing. But the emotional uh, tension that's in this text and the emotional release that is found in this text is not the main point or the important point of what I think the writer is saying. I think the theological note that is sounded here is the most important point of this text. And the theological note is sounded by two words. Sold or sent. Which is it? Sold or sent. And why does it matter that we differentiate between sold or sent in this text? You see, behind those two words and the idea that is, is, is laid out before us now, that is summarized really since we started in verse 37, is the biblical doctrine of the providence of God. It's one of the most profound doctrines in all of Scripture and one of the, I think, doctrines that is most helpful to the practical daily living of the people of God to understand and to wrap your heads around and begin to appreciate and investigate and dive into an understanding of the providence of God. The fact that God has a plan. The fact that God has purposes and how that plan and how those purposes are worked out in this world in which we live and not only in the platform of the world in which we live but in the day-to-day -day lives of both you and I of our family and of our children that God knows even when a sparrow falls that God knows the hairs on our head and how are these details all worked out you see when you look at this text both sent and sold are correct and they help us understand something of the providence of God but when we don't think of these texts as or these words as joining together we run into all kinds of problems for instance without a biblical worldview all we would be left with in this text is sold and all of the implications that come out of that word and that reality they would be horrific this is the naturalistic ex explanation of the world in which we live in today. If you've been with us here for the last number of years, we talk about this fairly often. The worldview that we are surrounded with is a naturalistic worldview. It is a worldview that says there is no God. It is a worldview that says there is no interference from outside. This is a closed world in which we live. And we are simply the product of evolutionary development. We are the product of chance. We are the product of random chances. We are just accidentally where we are today by sheer accident. All that happens is called chance. Life is ruled by fate or maybe even by blind determinism. And if that is the only explanation of how Joseph ended up in Egypt, that he was sold, then that is a terrifying response to, or a terrifying way of trying to work yourself through this story. If that was the case, then we would expect revenge. 
We would expect bitterness. We would expect anger. We would expect the boys to be terrified. We would expect there to be all these human emotions that are associated with living on simply the physical plane. Here are these ten brothers. They have just reason to be terrified. They had meant evil in selling Joseph into Egypt, and now they had been caught. But the text provides another explanation for how Joseph is in the position that he is. It's not in place of the first one, for both of them are true. But it is the definitive explanation, or it is the explanation that explains the first reason that Joseph is there. He was sent. Joseph was sent by God. And this understanding flows out of a biblical worldview. You see, there's two ways of looking at the world. Well, there's more than just two biblical worldviews, but there's two dominant worldviews. There's the naturalistic worldview, and there's the biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview begins with a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He created the heavens and all that flies in it. He created the earth and all that is on it. He created the seas and all that is in it. He knows it. He understands it. He made it. He's, he, he's thought it out. He knows exactly how it works. And not only has he one that has created this all, but he guides it. He directs it. He has a plan. He has a purpose for it. He knows exactly why he made it and what he made it for. And so not only does he make it, but he guides it and he directs it according to his will. See, the sending of Joseph into Egypt had two causes. The one was the naturalistic explanation. He was sold there by his brothers. But the spiritual plane, the spiritual explanation is that God sent him there. They had different reasons for what they did. The brothers acted out of jealousy and hatred. They wanted to nullify the dreams of God. Let's sell him and then see what happens to God's dreams. But God intended to use Joseph to be their savior. I've, I've wrestled with this so long, and I, 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 one of the texts that I think explains it very clearly, again, there is, there is years, a lifetime of diving into us, but Daniel chapter 1 and 2, and I've talked about this with us before, in the third year of the reign of Jer Jer Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's history. That's the physical plane. That's what kings do. They, they try and conquer other kingdoms. And so in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar went out to try and capture Jerusalem. But then we have the spiritual plane in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so, as we've said together so many times over the last number of years, things are not as they seem. Or better yet, Things are not only as they seem. There is a whole lot more going on in your life and in my life than meets the eyes. God is on the throne. There is a throne, remember? There is a throne, and the throne is occupied, and that occupied throne is the control center of this universe, and God is guiding and directing all things that happen on this earth. And so he meant the selling of Joseph for good. This is why providence matters. When sent interprets sold, our response to the physical world is entirely different. It can be replaced by peace. 
Hatred can be replaced by love. Anger can be replaced by patience. Vengeance can be replaced by forgiveness. Despair can be replaced by hope. Why? Because God is in control. Because God is, God is directing and guiding all of things. Sold or sent, which is it? Providence matters. And so we come to this text. I've divided it into four different ways, and, and we're going to work through it at a pace that I hope will get us out of here before one. But... Um, we will work our way through it, and, and uh, I proved that I could do it in the first service, so I think I can do it in the second service. Uh, the first is a, a word to the brothers. Um, Joseph's speech really goes from verse 3 to verse 13, but uh, I, I just want to stop and just us to think about the word to the brothers that we find in the verse, first eight verses. As I began studying this text five, six, seven weeks ago, uh, the first thing I wrote in my notes when I um, read the first two verses was an emotional damn breaks. And in fact, this whole section is framed by emotion. It starts with um, this uncontrollable outburst by Joseph. It ends with him wrapping his arms around his brothers and hugging them and kissing them and weeping on them. So it's framed by this incredible emotion. And it's a real emotion. Now we're seeing the real Joseph. He had had to hide behind a facade for so long. For these months as he worked through this issue with his brothers, had they changed? How would they treat Benjamin? What did they think of their dad? And he hid behind the facade of being the second in command of Egypt. But now the real Joseph is exposed. One who loves his brothers. One who cares for his brothers. One who is not afraid or ashamed to show his emotion. The second thing that I noted in this text was he clears the room. As he makes himself known, or before he makes himself known, he clears the room. So all that's in the room are Joseph and his brothers. I think there's a real practical point here for us in families and as we work things out together when we've had offenses or things that have gone wrong. There are times when we ought not air our dirty laundry. There are times when stuff that happens in the family ought to stay in the family. It's nobody else's business. And Joseph here is very careful not to expose his brothers to, to whatever feelings the other Egyptians might have. As all of a sudden their love for their master is now turned into anger towards the brothers who had so mistreated him. And so as Joseph makes himself known to his brothers, it's only them in the room. And I think that's another way that we know that he's forgiven them. He doesn't need to make his point by letting everybody know, by rubbing it in. He'd already forgiven them. He wants them to work this out together. He wants them to know how much he loves them. And I think this helps us understand texts that sometimes we read and we're confused by, such as Proverbs 17.9. Where it says there, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates closest friends. It helps us understand, I think, just love, where it says love, um, uh, love does keep no record of wrongs. You see, to see the kindness of Joseph here, he, he doesn't need to hurt them any longer. He doesn't need to rub it any longer. They already have, have sensed their shame. They've already experienced deep guilt. Now's the time for reconciliation. Now's the time for restoration. Now's the time for the family to stick together and work this thing out finally. I don't know if there could be any more shocking words than these three words that his brothers had heard for ages. I am Joseph. Can you imagine what's going through their heads? They haven't seen him for 22 years. And now the man that they've been dealing with for the last number of years is an Egyptian. He speaks through a Hebrew, or he speaks through an interpreter. He dresses differently. He talks differently. He smells differently. He doesn't have anything to do with cattle right now. And all of a sudden he says, I am Joseph. 
I expect the impact of those words was just like the impact of Nathan's words to David when finally God exposed David's sin. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. I am Joseph. It's difficult to catch the intensity of their response now to his words. Read it in the end of verse 3, I think it is. End of verse 2, the fan has blown my pages here. End of verse 3, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Another translation says they were terrified. It's a word that's used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament in the Hebrew to describe uh, those that are um, uh, terrified by an advancing army. It's a word that's used to describe Saul when he conjures up Samuel and he's terrified by the apparition that stands before them. They were rocked to the core of their being. They were rocked in their hearts. It's difficult to kind of know what's going through their heads as they all of a sudden um, they hear this, I am Joseph. It says they were terrified. Some have said there is a smell to fear. I suspect there was the smell of fear in that room. Because in a, in a flash, and some of you know what this like, that, that when you're caught in a situation, all of a sudden, in seconds, it seems like years just flash through your heads. And all of a sudden, these boys, they, they hear, I am Joseph, and it flashes through their heads how some 22 years ago they had so hated their brother that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. So many years ago, they were so enraged by their father's special love for him that in a moment, all they could think about was how they would kill Joseph. So clouded were they with jealousy towards Joseph that they thought his father had sent him as a spy. So calloused had they been after they'd thrown him into that pit and he bounced his way down that dry pit to the bottom that it says they sat down and ate a meal. So uncaring had they been as they made a bargain with the Midianite traders to, say, to, to sell him that in the background Joseph was pleading with them and begging with them, no, don't send me, no, don't do this. So determined had they been to rub it into their father and despised his love that they took that robe, tore it, dipped it in goat's blood and sent it back to him, staging his death by wild animals. And now after all of that, they stand before the one guy that they had done all that to. And they were terrified. And then Joseph speaks again. Some of the most beautiful words so far in this passage. Come. Come near to me, please. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He's not rubbing it in here. What he's doing, he's just saying, no, it's really me. Nobody else knew that secret. Nobody else knew anything about that. Only Joseph and his brothers. And so as he did that, that's his gentle, careful way of telling them, I am Joseph. I wonder the tone that might have been there. I wonder about the look in his eyes as he spoke those words to his brothers. Come, come near to me. I am Joseph. The remaining words of Joseph are again full of kindness. They don't let the brothers off the hook. They don't suggest that the brothers had done no wrong, but they give us insight into how Joseph had managed for 22 years to live. I think some of us, as, we, as we've read this story, we think, ah, oh, Joseph, you should have slaughtered them. 
Joseph, what are you doing being nice to them? Joseph, do you know what they've done to you, Joseph? How can you take that? Why are you bitter? Why are you angry? Why don't you take it out on your brothers? And why haven't you done something about Potiphar and his wife after all? Look at what they did to you. It's because Joseph lived in the scent plane. Joseph lived with an eye on God. Joseph lived interpreting all the realities of physical life through the grid of God, who had a plan, who promised, who guided, who directed, who was good, who was righteous, who was holy, who was just, who could be trusted. For all those years, Joseph has, had lived on the scent plane. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I'm not sure how the brothers processed those words. That's not the plane that they lived on. They were terrified specifically because they expected that they were in a huge amount of trouble. Verse 5, Joseph says, You sold me, but God sent me. Don't be worried or angry with yourselves. Wow, like what amazing words to his brothers. Don't be angry or dismayed with yourselves. I'm not and why? Because God sent me ahead of you. He had hung on to the promises of God from a to Abraham. He had hung on to the revelation of God given to him when he was 17 years old. That one day his brothers would come down and they would bow before him. He had hung on to that because he knew that this famine was coming. And in verse 7, God sent me to prever, pre preserve a remnant and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. See, this has the markings of the flood all over it when, when God preserved the life of eight people as he destroyed the earth. Now God is preserving the whole family of Jacob through Joseph being in Egypt and being the leader there so he could bring his whole family and give them a great deliverance because there's five more years of famine, severe famine. It's going to destroy the land and his family would be impoverished. But God knew all that and he sent me ahead so that I could preserve a remnant and keep you alive. Just as a little twist, I, find it, I found it fascinating I'm sure these words made it back to Jacob at some point. Joseph says, God sent me. But do you remember back in Genesis 37, verse 4? When Jacob's or Joseph's brothers were out in the fields, and Jacob says to Joseph, Come, I will send you to your brothers. Jacob was the very instrument of God in sending Joseph to the trials that he would face for the next 22 years. You see, if the house of Jacob had failed, and you'll need to work this through because I, I don't have time this morning to open up, but if, if, the, if the house of Jacob had failed to survive, the whole human race would die without hope. You see, the promises of God were tied to the survival of the family of Jacob. And if the famine had destroyed the family, there would have come no savior for you and for I today. So it was God who sent you, or God who sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. You know, you look at life sometimes. Sometimes we're in the middle of, of just ugly stuff. Some of you might be there and you think, I can't see the hand of God anywhere. 
That's the, sign, that's the time when you put your hope in God. That's the time when you dig in deep and you trust his word. That's the time when you believe the word of God over the circumstances that you're walking through. Then there are some times when we can discern the purposes of God as we're walking through. We say, oh, of course. Thank you, God. I'm so thank you for that. I've had an instance of that in the last week as I've just a small little thing that I've seen God's amazing gift to me. And then there's times when 22 years later, you can look back over life and you can see, of course God was doing that. Of course God was, his hand was upon it. Of course I can see now what God was up to. Why are you in Parksville? Whatever brought you here? I, I bet you, you know, we could list off a whole bunch. Of, well, you know, I, I came for a job. Uh, I came for retirement. I came to find a spouse. I, I, I came because I love the nature. I came because I love the, the beauty of here. And so I just decided to come. Have you ever sat back and said, God, why did you bring me to Parksville? Why did your hand lead me and my family to this place at this time. You see, one of the things that you and I can ask God to do, and I think it would help us immensely, is say, God, would you help me to be a wise interpreter of your providence? Would you help me, Father, to live in the plane of sent and not sold? Father, would you trust me when I can't understand the plane of sold? And I have to believe by faith that you sent me. Joseph then jumps to a word to his father. I'm really going to skip through this quickly because I want to spend a little bit of time on some applications. Joseph's father was his main concern. In verse 3, he, he, says, he, he says to his brothers, is my father alive? Not is he living. He knew he was living, but is he alive? Is he thriving? Is he doing well? Is he healthy? Tell me, how's my dad doing? You see, for 22 years, he had wondered, he had thought, he had, what's my dad up to? What's my dad doing? How's he, how's he surviving? And then, in verse 13, his last words are, tell my dad to come. I love his concern for his dad in his old age. I think many of us, as we face those days with our parents, could show the same kind of concern that Joseph has for his dad. Finally, words of reconciliation. Acts and words of reconciliation. Verse, verses 14 and 15. There's a whole lot of weeping, hugging, and kissing going on in there. Now the room, rather than smelling of fear, smelt of love. A different kind of smell altogether. I can probably be sure that there's a few of you here today who would long for a scene like this to be worked out with your son or your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, or your father. Or you could meet in a room and everything is done, forgotten, forgiven, and there's weeping and there's hugging and your head is buried deep in the crook of their neck. And you're filled with love. It's an incredibly sweet scene. And there's one final note to this which caught me. I don't think there's any throwaway words or phrases in Scripture. 
But notice at the very end, it says, after that, his brothers talked with him. Do you remember the last time any reference to conversation between the brothers took place? It says, Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they couldn't even speak peaceably with them. I think one of the greatest signs of reconciliation and health is communication. I think some of us men are given to the silent treatment when we're angry. It's brutal. It's brutal on our spouses. And what a joy it is when we get over ourselves and we talk with our spouse. Communication is just a sign of reconciliation and forgiveness. And so here, could you imagine that... Could you imagine the conversation? I bet you they talked for hours into the night as they got caught up on 22 years, as maybe Joseph, in a wonderful way, shared with them how he made it to the position. What a beautiful conversation that must have been as they talked with one another into the night. If you're at odds with somebody and you'd so long to be reconciled, ask God, the sending God, to work forgiveness and reconciliation in your family, and maybe you will have a day like this. Just a couple things that I want to say. I think they're important because they, they're, they're now a different level of reflection on the text. And they're just things that step out as I reflect on God. The first is I was reflecting a little bit on the brother's response when Joseph finally revealed himself to him, it says they were dismayed or they were terrified. That gives us a peek into the experience that many will have when they stand before God on that final day. See, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. Paul tells of a day that God has fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, the brothers, as they faced Joseph, they were undone. They were rightly terrified. They recognized their guilt. They recognized and they rehearsed over all the things that they had done, all the ways they had fended, all the ways they had sinned against their brother. And there was no question of their guilt. They had admitted this at least three times in the text already. And they were terrified. Scripture says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God exposed, laid bare before a holy, just, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, holy God who made the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that swims in, the one who holds your breath in his hands, the one who holds your destiny in his hands. And, and I think you can think through a moment the terror that those boys must have gone through as they heard those words, I am Joseph. Think what it will be like to have your eyes opened before God, see his throne, and realize that he is real. The second thing that struck me is right after that, Joseph's words of kindness and invitation, come, come near to me, please. There's some beautiful words of invitation in the scripture. And just as we should be rightly terrified to stand before the living God, that living God says to us, come, come near, please. 
Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is the context of Isaiah exposing the sinfulness and the rebellion of the people of Israel. And all they deserved was judgment. They justly should have been terrified. And yet God, through Isaiah, issues this beautiful invitation to them. Come, let's reason together. Let's talk this out. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah speaks a little bit later, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you need to spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the rich food. Incline your ear, come near to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Soak there, just for a moment. Everyone who thirsts, thirsts for life, thirsts for wholeness, thirsts for freedom, thirsts for certainty, thirsts for forgiveness. Come to me, everyone who thirsts. See, this is talking about a spiritual thirst, not a physical thirst. See, so much of what motivates us in life today is on the physical plane. We, we think that more houses or more cars or more money or more clothes or more shoes or more fishing rods or more traveling, that will satisfy us. That will satisfy or fill up a thirst that we have inside of our souls. But here's an invitation that will satisfy. Come to me, says God, and you will find that thirst quenched. He who has no money, come. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have anything. You just have to come. Just accept the invitation. Come. It extends to those who are penniless. God will foot the bill. God will pay all that cost involved. Come, he says. Just come near to me, please. But God also invites the self-sufficient. You know, it is amazing how pride and self-sufficiency keeps people away from God. I don't need God. I can do it myself. I can buy what I need. I can accumulate what will make me happy. But God invites the self-sufficient. Why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Why do you work for that which doesn't fill that void inside of you? Come to me. Finally, Jesus Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you know what a tired soul is? You don't have to be a, somebody who hasn't found God yet to know what a tired soul is. You can have an exhausted soul and still be a follower of Christ because you just don't release things to Christ. You don't, you don't trust him. You don't put your faith in him. You don't, you, you, we are filled with moralism and with legalism. I, I can just do more. I can just do better. I can just keep more. And it just crushes us. And Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. The last point of application I want to make is where Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me. God had sent Joseph as a deliverer for them. So I ask about Jesus, sold or sent. See, there is a day coming. It's called the second coming, the return of Jesus. It's 
It's tied in with the day of the Lord. It's tied in with the final judgment. It's a severe day. It's a terrifying day. It's a day from which we need deliverance. God has prepared a salvation for that day in sending Jesus for us to deliver us. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our deliverance. Through his provision alone will we be able to escape the sure and certain judgment and return that is coming when Jesus returns. Just as the famine was certain and Joseph's brother had to trust that he would provide for them and that that famine would come, so too we have to believe the word of God, trust the word of God, that there is a day coming when God will judge the world, but God has provided for us a savior. He has provided for us deliverance. He has provided for us salvation. In who? In Jesus Christ, the sent one. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that they might receive adoption as sons. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. Remember how Acts describes the death of Jesus, how he was betrayed and how he was murdered, and they killed the son of life. He was delivered up. Here it is. Sent soul. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, but God raised him up. It's the providence of God at work again. Will you put your trust in Jesus today? Will you accept the salvation that God has provided? Father, I thank you for your word today, and I thank you for this incredible historical account of the generations of Jacob, and yet how it drips with theological help that is relevant for us today. Help us, I pray, to lay hold of it. In Jesus' name, amen.